Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray. What we're going to talk about this morning, Father, is something that only you can produce in the human heart. I have no power to do that. My words will have no power to do that. Only your spirit can do that. And I pray that he has done that in most of the people in this room and in any that he has not done that, your spirit will work even today to produce repentance. So ultimately, what I need help with here as I speak these words is that you would just take them and do your working in the hearts of this people, each one as is needed according to your wisdom and power. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been walking through the book of Genesis, so if you're a visitor with us today, we haven't just picked this text out of thin air. We're kind of jumping in in the middle of a story, and um, I'm a little disappointed because right at the end of this chapter, we're begging for a climax, right? I mean... You're saying to Joseph, come on, tell them who you are. And it doesn't happen. Rick gets to talk about that next week, so I'm really disappointed. (laughs) But throughout Genesis, we've been following the major themes of God's sovereign working in carrying out his plan of redemption following the fall in the garden. He's still determined to bring his people into his place to enjoy his presence forever. And all along, we've seen God work, this, work out this plan through flawed and sinful people like Judah, like Jacob, like Isaac. So God is always working. Let's just see this as we go through the text today. God is always working at the micro level, that is working out those plans in individual people, changing, molding, and growing them in ways that often even they don't recognize or understand. And he's also working at the macro level of working out his plan for all eternity. So you'll see those two levels of working as we go through the text today. As we all play a part in God's eternal plan of the ages, we individually are also undergoing transformation and sanctification as God works in us to make us more like Christ. And all change like that begins with repentance. There's no true conversion without repentance. There's no growth in the Christian life without repentance. Martin Luther is kind of famous for saying a lot of things, but he said this too. The Christian life is a life of repentance. So today we're going to dive into this idea and talk about what is repentance. Now, And and how do you know whether someone, like yourself, has really repented? And then we're going to see all that played out in Joseph's brothers, particularly in the life of Judah. So I want to begin by defining our terms. What is repentance? I like the definition Thomas Watson, the great Puritan preacher, gave in his little book on repentance. He said, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled 
and visibly reformed. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about that definition. First, he says it's a grace of God's spirit. You can't produce repentance in yourself. God does that. And he does it by convicting you and waking you up to your sin while also giving you a desire to change. A lot of times we have conviction of sin, but no real desire to change. The Holy Spirit gives you both. And second, I want you to notice that Watson says it results in both inward and outward change. He says we are inwardly humbled and visibly or outwardly reformed. In other words, true repentance leads to a change of attitude and a change of action in your life. God changes your heart so that you will want to turn around and walk a different way. Okay, now we, we, could, we saw as Bob read through the text that the word repentance isn't actually used in this passage. But I think we do see this type of change in the brothers and particularly in Judah. Think about Judah as we've studied this. And Daniel kind of reviewed this last week. I'll review it again. Back in chapter 37, he's an angry brother like the rest of them filled with envy and jealousy that this punk younger half-brother of his, Joseph, is the favorite son out of the 12. And then we see in chapter 38 the beginnings of conviction and change after Judah's sin is found out with Tamar. And he takes another step in chapter 42. Along with all the brothers, they recognize that Joseph's harsh treatment of them on their first trip to Egypt is probably a consequence of their sin against Joseph years before. In other words, they're making a direct link between what happened years ago with Joseph and what God is doing now in Joseph treating them harshly or roughly. They make a link there. Then we, see it, we saw another step last week in chapter 43 when Judah takes responsibility for Benjamin's safe return, makes an appeal to his father, and then today, we'll see the final step in Judah's repentance as he takes full leadership among his brothers in humbling himself and making a respectful appeal, appeal even in the face of a false accusation. And let's keep in mind a little context here. 22, roughly 22 years have passed since Judah's bright idea to sell Joseph into slavery. So this has not been an overnight process in, Ju in Judah, and it's usually not an overnight process in us. It's always two steps forward, one step back, and that's another key point I want to bring up about repentance. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. We all know that we can be deeply convicted for our sin and sorrowful over it and really want to change, but real change rarely seems to be a momentary experience. Instead, it's a process of small steps, of trying, of failing, and getting up again. All right, so here, before we dive into the text, here's six characteristics of repentance that I want you to watch for as we walk through the text. I'm giving them to you ahead of time so you can keep your eye out for them. And I'll point them out as we go through, too. Number one, repentance involves sorrow for sin. Number two, it means we humble ourselves. Number three, 
It means we acknowledge and admit our wrong. Number four, repentance accepts the consequences of sin. Number five, repentance leads to real change in both heart and life. And number six, as I just mentioned, it isn't always perfect. So keep your eyes out for those. And all the while, I want you to keep your eye out for something else. Notice how God is working out his plan to fulfill his promises to his people. So God is acting sovereignly at the individual level of changing and sanctifying Joseph's brothers and at the bigger picture level of carrying out his plan to redeem his people through a messianic descendant of Judah. All right, that brings us to our text. So let's look at the second point of our outline, the first 13 verses. In here, we see Joseph devise and carry out a rather elaborate plan of, for lack of a better word, entrapment, essentially framing his brothers for a crime they don't commit. He instructs his steward to fill the men's sacks with as much grain as they can, they can and, and with their money again, very, very generous, right? But then he wants his servant to put the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Now, I got to ask, why does he do this? That's the question that was on. Why does he do this? What's he doing here? What's the purpose of this setup? Is he intending to get revenge, to get even for what they did by framing them for a crime? But if so, why does he pick Benjamin? I mean, Benjamin had nothing to do with selling Joseph to Egypt. And why would he do this after he just hosted this huge feast for them and they're having this celebration together? I think the purpose of this plan is to test the brothers for repentance. He wants to know if there's been any real change of heart in the last 22 years. And he's going to do it by testing how they respond when Rachel's other son, the new favorite of Jacob, Benjamin, is framed as a thief. Would they treat Benjamin as they had treated him? Would they throw Benjamin under the bus to save their own skins? Or were they different men now? I think those are the kind of questions that Joseph is seeking answers to. Now, we don't have to approve of his deceptive methods, and that's what it is. It's Deception. I'm not saying I approve of it, but we can understand the need to test for repentance in his brothers. Have you ever had a problem trusting somebody who stabbed you in the back or did something sinful or wrong to you? Have you had a problem trusting kids? Has that happened to you? Friend at school turns their back on you or, or bullies you and you have a problem trusting them. Even maybe if they come and ask your forgiveness and you have a, a problem trusting them. I think we can all relate to that. So let's pick it up at verse 3. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. So Joseph instructs his steward exactly what he wants him to say when he catches up to the brothers. It's unclear whether the reference to divination here means that Joseph really does engage in this occult practice, and that's what it is, 
or if it was just part of, his sto- of the story to keep up Joseph's cover as an Egyptian. I think given Joseph's integrity and faithfulness to the Lord for the most part over all this time, I tend to think that it's just intended to keep up the appearance that he's a pagan Egyptian official because that's what his brothers think he is. So the steward does exactly what he's told and says exactly what Joseph told him to say in verse 6. He springs the trap. And the brothers are bewildered. Look at their response in verses 7 and 8. Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from my Lord's house? So they're making a logical argument here, right? And it's a pretty good one. If they intended to steal stuff, why did they bring back the money from their last trip that was put back in their sacks and enough money to cover the food they're buying this time? That seems plain evidence that their intentions are sincere and thievery isn't on their minds. They're genuinely shocked by this allegation. In fact, they're so confident in their innocence. Look at what they kind of rashly state in verse 9. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. When you, when you see that word servant here, you should hear slave. So he's saying, whoever is found with a cup, execute him, and the rest of us will be your slaves. I mean, that's like overkill. The steward wisely doesn't bite on that. He says, only the guilty party is going to suffer the consequences, and that'll be enslavement, not death. So they search each man's sack, and of course, Benjamin is the last one searched, and much to their dismay, that's where the cup is found. So here we have the threat of the same thing happening to Benjamin as happened to Joseph being unjustly enslaved in Egypt. Do you get the parallel there? I think Joseph set it up that way. So how will the brothers respond? There's every opportunity for the brothers to escape consequences here, but they don't. They, can, they could let Benjamin take the fall and head home in seeming innocence. They don't. Instead, we see the first characteristic of genuine repentance. So here's the first characteristic I mentioned. They tear their clothes. Well, wait a minute. I didn't say anything about tearing clothes. What's that got to do with repentance? Well, in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, this was a sign of great grief and sorrow. So this is their expression of sorrow over this situation. They tear their clothes. And that's an attitude that must accompany any genuine repentance. There's not going to be any real change unless we're deeply convicted of the wrongness of our hearts and are grieved about it. Now, let me just say, sorrow is not the same as repentance. There's a difference. There are many reasons why people might be sorrowful over their sin. Here's a couple. They might be sorry they got caught. They might be sorry for the consequences they'll suffer. They might be sorry for the broken relationships that their sin has caused, but they're not really sorry for the sin itself. So all of those stop short of true repentance. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. He says, 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul says there's two kinds of sorrow here, a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. The sorrow itself is not necessarily a sign of repentance, but all true repentance includes sorrow for sin. So it's going to remain to be seen whether the grief that the brothers show here is the kind that leads to repentance or the worldly kind. But at least it's a hopeful sign at this point, right? So they all, un- they all repack their sacks and they head back to this city. Now the rest of this story, verses 14 to 34, reveals a remarkable transformation in all the brothers, but particularly Judah. We're going to focus on him. And notice how the writer of the text, Moses, focuses on Judah. In verse 14, he says, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. Now, up to this point in the story over the last few chapters, when the brothers speak, there's no one of them that's specified as the speaker. But by the time we get to this story, Judah is taking his place as a leader among these brothers, and in this case, a lead repenter. Of course, all this is God working his sovereign plan because he's already planning that Judah is the one from whom many kings will come, many kings, and eventually the king of kings, the Messiah. So God is at work here not only on the personal level in Judah and his brothers, but also on the macro level of fulfilling his plans and purposes. Now notice what they do when they get to Joseph's house. Second half of verse 14, they fell down before him. Now we can't help but notice that this is the third time now that the brothers have bowed before Joseph. Remember those dreams Joseph had years before? You're all going to bow down to me. And they laughed at him and they mocked him and they got mad at him. But this bowing, this bowing is more than a bowing out of respect and deference for a high Egyptian official. This is a humble bowing of a contrite offender who's about to plead for mercy to the judge who holds his destiny in his hand. True repentance means we are willing to humble ourselves before God and before the person or people we've sinned against. And that's the second characteristic of true repentance. We're willing to humble ourselves before God and before the people we've offended. Now Joseph questions them in verse 15. He says, what is this sin? What is this deed you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? And Judah's response is, again, I think, a lesson in repentance. Listen to what he says. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Now, I want to make three observations about Judah's response. So observation number one, Judah does not try to defend himself or the brothers. Remember, they're really innocent of this crime. They haven't done anything. So they could have offered the evidence of the money like they did to 
to Joseph's servant. They could have protested that someone had set them up, and they would have been right. But there's no defending here. There's no excuse-making. The physical evidence points to Benjamin, and there's no way that they can try to counter that. So Judah doesn't even try. Observation number two, Judah acknowledges guilt, which leads me to the third characteristic of true repentance. He acknowledges that God is the one who has exposed their guilt. Think about that. How can that be when there's no real guilt here? They haven't really done what they're accused of. Well, I think what God has done here is exposed to the brothers that though they're innocent of this particular crime, they are guilty. I mean, really, really guilty of so much more. Think about what's gone on in their lives. They hated their brother. They sold him like a slave for a few silver coins. Does that sound like Judas? You hear echoes there. They concocted a lie to cover up what they'd done, and they deceived their father into believing that Joseph was dead. And they'd maintained that fabrication for 22 years. It's a pretty good cover-up. And remember that it isn't just what they did to Joseph. Among these brothers is, is a swirling cauldron of sin, envy, jealousy, bitterness, infighting, sexual immorality, lying, mass murder. Remember Shechem? All these Genesis has already told us about. Observation number three. Judah and the brothers exhibit a fourth characteristic of truth, true repentance. They accept the consequences of their wrong. So third characteristic is acknowledging our, our guilt. <clears throat> and the fourth characteristic is accepting the consequences of that wrong. You see that when Judah surrenders the whole group of them to Joseph's judgment and accepts that they shall all become slaves in Egypt. <clears throat> not only does genuine repentance not engage in excuse-making and rationalization and defensiveness, it accepts the consequences. As hard as they may be, a repentant person recognizes that guilt for sin requires that a penalty be paid in order for justice to be served. And this is why true repentance is a necessary fruit of any real understanding of the gospel. We have to come to accept that we are justly guilty before a holy God, before the good news is really good news. We have to understand that we deserve the wages of that sin, namely death. And I'm talking about spiritual death, not just physical death. And by that I mean eternal punishment in hell. Until we see just how holy God is and just how wretched we are, we're not ever going to move beyond excuse-making and rationalizing and defensiveness. And only the cross stands between us and those consequences. But more about that, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Let's take a look at verse 17. <clears throat> Joseph, ever the upright judge, is not going to hear anything about enslaving all of them. Only the guilty party is going to become a slave and the rest are free to go. Now that creates an instant problem for the brothers, right? Especially for Judah, 
who promised his father he'd bring Benjamin back. Judah knows that returning to Canaan without Benjamin will be devastating, maybe fatal to his father. So he decides to make a desperate appeal. And we see this in verses 18 to 34. They cover this long appeal. We're not going to have time to cover it in detail. There's a lot of interesting things I'd like to talk about there. But in the interest of time, I just want to overview what he does in this appeal. He addresses Joseph with great respect for his honored and powerful position in verse 18. He recounts the context of what happened the first time they came to Egypt in verses 19 to 23. And then he appeals to any compassion Joseph might have on Jacob in verses 24 to 32. And remember that Judah doesn't yet know that he's talking to Joseph. So he probably doesn't think there's any reason that this Egyptian official should have any compassion or care anything about his father. He's just appealing to common human compassion here. Then we get to verse 33, and that's where I want to focus our attention. Because here I think we see the transformation of Judah complete. We see the fifth and final character, fifth, almost second to last characteristic of true repentance. It's a change of heart that results in a change of life. We've already seen several evidences that Judah is a different man now. But here... Judah offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin. He says, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Here's an act of self-sacrificial love that demonstrates a complete change of heart and mind from what Judah was 22 years before. But there's more than an act of substitution here, more to this act of substitution. Remember, God is not only working in the individual heart of Judah, but he's also working to bring about his sovereign plan of redemption. And that plan is that Judah is going to be the one from whom the Messiah will come. So if you flip over to Revelation chapter 5, so we're going from the very first book of the Bible to the last, I'll read it to you here. You don't need to turn there if you don't want to, but I just want you to see from beginning to end, this is in the Bible. Revelation 5, 5, Jesus is exalted like this. Behold, the lion of the tribe of who? Judah, right. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So only this one, this Jesus, is worthy to open the scroll. And why? Well, if we read on in verse 9 of Revelation 5, it says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So his death ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. And how did he do that? By substituting himself for guilty sinners and bearing the punishment we deserve on the cross. Now, we've seen this principle of substitution before in Genesis. You remember after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God made animal skin clothing for them. So there was the sacrifice of some animals there. That may have been the beginning of atoning sacrifices. 
We see the ram in the thicket provided instead of Isaac for Abraham. And we're going to see it in the future if you go through the rest of the Old Testament and the whole sacrificial system is built on substituting animal sacrifices for guilty sinners. And that runs all the way up to Jesus, the final and ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. So what Judah does here in offering to substitute himself for his brother prefigures what Christ will do on the cross substituting himself for us and bearing the full wrath of God for us. And it seems to be that this convinces Joseph that his brothers are truly changed and drives to the climax of the story that Rick is going to talk about next week. So I'm going to leave you hanging to be continued. But let's talk about what that means for our lives today. The question I think for each of us is, have you experienced this life-transforming power of repentance? And right at this point is where the massive plan of God for the ages to redeem for himself a people and to bring them into his place and to enjoy his presence forever meets his working in individual lives like Judah's and yours and mine. If you've experienced this inward humbling and visible reformation, as Watson said, then you're part of that new kingdom, that new people. You're part of the universe-spanning, eternity-encompassing plan of Almighty God. Isn't that joyful news? And it took a work of God to bring you to the point of seeing your guilt and sin and desiring to turn away from it. it. Took a work of God to do that. God was a work in you personally and individually to give you the grace of repentance. And he was at the same time fulfilling his plan and purpose to redeem people from every tribe and tongue and language of which you are one. But listen, suppose you're somebody who's never experienced that. Well, I'm praying that God would open your eyes to see the danger you're in today. Because you see, unlike Benjamin, who was framed for a crime he didn't really commit, we really are guilty, all of us. Romans 3.23, how many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, does that say? All. How many is all? All. All, yeah. Yeah. You see, we were created to glorify God, and we've failed to do that. We've failed to live for his glory. We just don't treasure God like we ought to. That's our natural state apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So maybe you don't feel particularly guilty today, but I'm not talking about feelings of guilt because real guilt isn't about a feeling. It's a verdict of a holy God against rebellious sinners. And the only answer to that guilt is Jesus. In going to the cross, he, the guiltless one, substitutes himself for us and absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. And then he did what we could not do. He rose from the dead, as Daniel mentioned at the beginning of the service. And by doing that, he guaranteed eternal life for everyone who will believe. So what is your response to the verdict that rests on you if you've never experienced this repentance? 
if you've never put your faith in this one who offers himself as your substitute. Well, Jesus gives you what the response should be. Jesus himself in Mark 1.14 says, very simple, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. But what about if you're a believer and you've already trusted in Jesus Christ? What if you find, as, as most of us off, too often do, that we've again fallen into sin? I'm just going to tell you, do the same thing. You repent. You repent. We need this gospel of grace every day. It's not a once and done at the beginning of the Christian life. And that leads me to the last characteristic of repentance. Number six, it isn't always perfect. What do I mean by that? Well, as I quoted Luther at the beginning, the Christian life is a life of repentance. And Judah and his brothers illustrate this for us too. So as far as they've come to this point, and as much change as they've experienced, they can still fall into the temptation to sin even in the act of asking for forgiveness. I want you to see this. Turn over a couple pages to Genesis chapter 50, verses 16 and 17. This is really interesting. So here's the context. Jacob has died, and Judah and his brothers are concerned that with their father out of the picture, Joseph just might exact a revenge that they fear he secretly harbored for years. So this is what they say. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now I'm just going to say that we have no record that Jacob ever gave the other brothers any such instruction like this. I think, frankly, it's just out of fear that the brothers make up this story about Jacob sending a message to Joseph. If Jacob even had said that, why wouldn't he say it directly to Joseph? We're going to see in chapter 48 that he has a meeting with Joseph right before he dies. He could have said that. could have said this there. He doesn't. So I think it's just a fear-motivated thing. They make this story up. And I want you to note that they follow it up by actually asking for forgiveness. So here we are. Asking for forgiveness is good and part of genuine repentance, right? But they think they have to add the weight of Jacob's endorsement in order to get Joseph to do it. So in the process of asking for forgiveness, a good thing, they lie a bad thing. Just saying, repentance isn't always perfect because we aren't perfect. Now, by saying that, I'm not seeking to encourage or endorse a never-ending cycle of sin, repent, sin, repent, where real change never happens. That's not true repentance. But I do want to give you hope when you're discouraged that you failed or failed again I hope it encourages you not to run from God, but to run to him, to his open arms. He's waiting for you. Repentance is a pathway to lasting joy in the arms of our heavenly father. Let's pray.
Repentance is a gift granted by you, Father. So once again, it's nothing I can produce, nothing any one of, one of us can whip up in ourselves. We need you. We need you. So whether we've been believers for decades or whether we're just feeling the drawing of your Holy Spirit for the first time here today, I pray that you would grant us the grace of repentance whenever we need it for whatever sin we've done. And knowing that in that, your arms are open wide to us. You love us. You call us. You want us to repent. You will grant us the power to do that and the power to change. So help us, Lord. We need you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.